0: Go to www.worldofinknetwork.com or visit us on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Thank you for your support and enjoy the show.
1: Good evening and welcome to the latest episode of Renaissance Rambles. I'm your host, Scott R. Arcasley. Tonight we have a very special guest. We have Tracy McDonald, an author from Utah. She writes romance suspense novels such as Burning Bridges, excuse me, Burning Bridger from Muse It Up Publishing that was published in 2015, Killing Casanova that was released through Crimson Romance in 2012, and her forthcoming book is called The Soul of Stone. I'd like to welcome Tracy to the show. Tracy, how are you doing tonight?
2: Crazy. can you hear, can you me? hear me?
0: Yeah, yeah hear just you. barely. I, you I got tonight? a
2: beep, and I'm good. How are you? Oh,
1: very well, thank you. I so was little to the worried because
2: I was having a hard time getting through.
1: Oh, were you? Oh, let's look into yeah. that. I'm sorry about that.
2: Oh, that, I don't think it's your fault. So, uh, I think it's a blind lady and a phone.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, where you grew up and what your childhood was like.
2: Let's see. I grew up in a little small town that is in the southern part of Utah. I live about two hours north of Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, My childhood was pretty normal, average, I guess, up until the point where um, when I was was eight years old, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and I was Mm -hmm. sick. For the rest of my life, I was in and out of the hospital probably every six weeks between the time I was eight years old and about 14 years old. And then when I was 17 years old, my father, who was also a diabetic, um, died of a series of heart attacks. And I found his body after he'd passed away. And things got a little messy after that.
1: Yeah, I bet. I'm really sorry to hear that.
2: Oh, it's all right. He's better off. (laughs)
1: yeah Um, so um, how did you discover writing
2: Um, I've been writing ever since I was probably three or four years old my mother was an elementary school teacher and my father actually taught math higher levels of math and so I learned to read and write when I was about two or three years old and as soon as I could start to write by picking up a pencil or a crayon I scribbled all over everything, and my mom needed to direct my energy someplace. I started writing poetry. I started writing songs. In fact, I won a contest when I was eight years old for a best original song, and um, I couldn't really? write the music because I didn't. Yeah, I couldn't write the music because I didn't know how. But my mom was very mm-hmm. musically talented, so she took the lyrics that I wrote and set it to music for me, and then I won that competition.
1: What kind of uh, song was it?
2: Um, Interestingly enough, it was a romance. <laughs> it was a love song. <laughs> I was eight years old. <laughs> I originally a little foreshadowing, sung it perhaps? To, yeah, maybe. it mm-hmm. should have told me right then mm-hmm. what I was up to, right? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I was, Absolutely. Um,
2: I was older than the rest of my brothers and sisters, and I had a baby brother at the time, and I was actually singing mm-hmm. him to sleep one night. And that was a song that I invented to sing him to sleep because it was quiet and calm and helped him be able to sleep.
1: And you were how old again? Eight?
2: Yeah, I was eight. <laughs> like I said, that was not the first time I wrote things. It's just the f- first time my mom put them to music for me.
1: Okay, so you became a serious writer at eight. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: That's really That was impressive. my first
2: competition. <laughs>
1: Nice. (laughs) Very, very impressive. So what were some of your other hobbies other than writing when you were a kid?
2: Um, I was a very busy girl when I was a a kid. I had an older brother and I had a younger brother. And then I had two younger sisters and a baby brother, too. And because I was sandwiched in between the boys, I was always trying to keep up with them. I played football with my brothers. I played softball. Um, My family did wrestling And I went everywhere with the wrestling squad. I kept score. I kept up with the boys. And that's what I wanted to do almost all of the time. I wanted to be able to keep up with the boys. When I did things on my Mm -hmm. own, um, I like to bike ride. I like to play a little bit of soccer. Um, I still love to bike ride. I've got a Mm 13-year-old son that's working on a project where he has to ride a certain number of mountain biking trails. And I want to go on them. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Mom, you're too old. You're going to get hurt. (laughs) And I tell tell him that that's what I want to do. I I like to do lots of things that challenge me. I don't like to sit around and do nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm a completely blind person. And you tell people Mm -hmm. you want to go do things and they want you to sit in a corner somewhere. And that is just not my personality. I wasn't like that when I was a little kid. I'm not like that now. I need things to do Mm -hmm. and I need to take a little bit of chance when I do it.
1: How did you initially lose your sight?
2: Um, I became a diabetic when I was eight years old. And one of the side Mm -hmm. side effects of diabetes is that all of the very small blood vessels in your body will um, stick closed from what's called um, sugar in your blood. It's not real sugar in your blood, but it has the same effect. It sticks all of those blood vessels together And then things hemorrhage, things like your heart and your kidneys and your eyes. And um, any place that you have a very small group of blood vessels, they will hemorrhage. And then that portion of the body will die. So I lost my eyesight because I had um, portions of my eyes that began to hemorrhage. And then I Mm -hmm. had a surgery done where they stopped the bleeding. And they used a bubble to make it so my retina... In place and then um, I, I got on an airplane to come home after the surgery and the altitude mm-hmm. change in the airplane burst that bubble and so my oh. retina detached mm-hmm. once your retina detaches your eye is no longer solid so I had to have my eye removed so my right eye is made of glass actually oh really yep I can take it out of my wow. head but it usually grosses people out
1: so do you do that then?
2: Um, I do it for the little kids because the little kids think it's cool. I'm a side <laughs> The way you it said it, focus. I kind
1: of had a feeling you did. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if I, I do it, I'm like, to take it
2: out. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> if you want me to take it out, I'll pull it out for you and lay it on the palm of my hand so you can look at it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Always, once a mis- mischief maker, always a mischief maker, right?
2: That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now um what has been something that has surprised you most about losing your sight, if possible in positive ways?
2: Um, I don't know if it surprises me because I had no experience with going blind before. But my favorite thing about losing my eyesight is that I am not distracted by anything. I'm not distracted by what you look like. I'm not distracted by how much you weigh. I'm not distracted by how fancy your car is or where you live because I can't see any of that. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing about being blind is that I picture everybody in my head the way I see you and that picture does not change. Everybody looks like they're between 21 and 25 in my head. Everybody is Perfect. a supermodel or a movie star. Nice. It's my favorite okay, thing. Um, I can see you how I want to see you.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me see. What um role would you say family plays in your life?
2: Um, family has always played a big role in my life. Um, my father, losing my father when I was a teenager was probably the most devastating thing that I went through, through just because emotionally – I was not prepared to um, go through the rest of my life without strong parents. And my parents had always been very, very strong. After my father was gone, um, my mom completely emotionally came apart. And um, I had an older brother that after my father died, he left and moved to Guatemala six months later. And then I had all of my younger brothers and sisters that I had to take care of and figure out how to get them through what was going on and get myself through what was going on and figure out how to keep life going even though I really didn't want it to. And so my family especially has always been very, very important to me. Um, I have a transplanted kidney. My older brother gave it to me. He donated it to me when my kidneys failed. My younger brother... Um t- is the next person on the donor list if um, this kidney mm-hmm. fails because you don't you, you can only keep a kidney for anywhere from well it's anywhere from fourteen to thirty years, so as long as I hang in there for a while, he won't be next, but I also have a sister right. um, that she's a diabetic too, like I am, so we're always mm-hmm. looking around for who's going to need spare body parts the next time one of us decides to fall apart, like I said, it killed my right. dad. My dad was 43 years old, and he'd had three heart attacks at that point. And so we, we looked out for each other, and we're always keeping track of how we can help and take care of each other. My family's always been like that. We've been really close, and we mm-hmm. do things out of the motivation of the fact that we know each other so well and we count on each other so much.
1: That's really that's really important and that is like very inspiring. You know?
2: Well and that's one of the reasons that I've actually um set my book, Soul of Stone, in the South, because the South mm-hmm. is a very, very family oriented type of culture. Their families are very important to them. They go generations and generations back. They live in grandpa's farmhouse or they live in their great grandpa's piece of property. Their family is one of the most important things to them, and it creates settings that I can use to not only risk people in their lives for them to be able to save, but I can also get help from people in their lives when they're stuck in a situation where they don't have anyone else that they can go to.
1: Mm-hmm. And family members oftentimes are like characters in and of themselves. Uh-huh. So, do you yep. do you also like, when you're writing characters are any of them like based on people you know?
2: Um, some of them are based loosely on people I know. For example, um, the second book that I wrote is called Burning Bridger, and it's a story mm-hmm. of a girl that comes from a an old fashioned Latin family, and there's a tradition in old Mexico that um, is not currently in big numbers, but there are still people that the old-fashioned Mexican belief is that your children and your wife belong to you, and you can do what you want to them because they are actually your possessions. And occasionally that works. Yeah, it's true. It is legal in Mexico in certain places for you to kill your children because they belong to you. It's a very old idea. There's not a lot of people who participate, but we do find it. I worked for Child and Family Services for a number of years, and we came across people all the time who didn't realize that they were being abusive to their wives and their children because they were actually raised believing that they could treat them the way they wanted. So one of my characters is a girl from a Latin family, and it's a very controlling Latin father. And it's the setting for who she is and the way she is. But she's actually based on my niece, who is from a part Latin family who are not like that at all. But she's a beautiful girl. And so her character is actually based on what that, this particular niece of mine looks like. I have characters that are based on other nieces. I have uh, a character that's based on an ex-boyfriend from when I lived in New York City. I have a character that's Mm -hmm. based on my husband, actually.
1: How does he feel about that?
2: Um, I don't know if he knows it's him. (laughs) Oh, really? He doesn't doesn't read romance, so (laughs) I don't even know if he knows whether or not it's him.
1: Oh, I'm priceless. Someday he'll figure it out because I'll force him to read my my book. Right. (laughs) Okay. Um, So um, what kind of characters draw you in personally? Like, do you have a favorite book?
2: Um, I have a number of books that I really, really like. But the kind of characters that draw me in, um, I like – Men, especially for male characters, who need a little healing and a little rescuing, but never come across like that. They seem rather alpha, and then they're um, softer and more patient and a little more arrogant than they probably should be. And then the female characters try to bring the balance out in the male characters. My female characters... I prefer women who are strong, who are capable, who are a little bit stubborn and need someone who can be very patient and constant in their life while they try and figure out all of the mysteries that are going on. Um, I have a number of books based on ones I started reading when I was a teenager. There's one by an author, her name is Dorothy Keddington. She writes a book called Jayhawk. And it's a book about a okay. girl who comes to sorry. Oh,
1: go ahead. I was just saying I was just repeating the title, that's all.
2: Yeah, it's Jayhawk. Um, a a girl comes to visit her college roommate and the girl's a very city girl and she goes to visit her college roommate on this, this ranch in Wyoming. And you've got your typical city girl with her suitcase and her high heels trying to go down the dirt road to the ranch, and she almost gets run off the road by a a guy in a pickup truck. And when he stops to try to pick her up out of the river he's knocked her into, he um, Mm -hmm. tries to pick her up, and she accuses him of driving like a wild Indian and then discovers that he is an Indian. He's actually a Shoshone Indian that lives on this ranch. Mm -hmm that she's headed toward. And the reason I like this particular book is because it takes a couple of people. This was written, oh, probably the 70s, maybe early 80s. And it takes a couple of people who aesthetically and culturally are from different backgrounds and still find ways to get past all the judgments that the white people in the book make and find ways to love each other. And that's what I think love does. I think love brings people together and gets barriers that a lot of times are visual barriers out of our way and helps us get to know the real people who are behind the color of our skin or the country we were born in.
1: I definitely agree with that. Romance like, definitely hits home and knows how the heart is what is most important.
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons I write romance is because I believe if you go back to where romance actually began, it's a, it's an idea. Everything starts with an idea. And then we have someone who can get us together on the same idea and and can lead us to believe in that same power. And before romance became erotic and became all the other things it turned into, it it was that idea that at the heart of all of us, we want to be loved. We want to be loved and we want to be accepted. And that's what we're tapping into whenever we write romance.
1: Now, shifting gears a little bit, but not completely, um, I want to ask what inspires you and pushes you to follow your passions?
2: Well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit of a complicated person. Um, mm-hmm. When I was growing up, my mother um, often told me that there were certain things that I would not be able to do. Um, I was quite sick when I was in, um, between the ages of 8 and, and 14 years old, and I was in and out of the hospital all the time, and I decided that I wanted to be a doctor because they seem to have all the good answers. And when I told my mom mm-hmm. that I wanted to be a doctor, she told me I was never going to be able to do it. I wasn't strong enough. I probably wouldn't have enough life left in me. It's just hard work. And you're just not a person that's physically capable of doing something like that. And that sparks in me a desire to do things when people tell me that I can't or that I shouldn't. If you tell me, not to do something, I'll go do it just to prove to you that I can. That's a big part that's of awesome. what drives me. But the things that I'm most passionate about are my kids. My kids, I do everything that are, that's good for my boys. I have three sons. I have one that's 18, one that's 17, and one that's 13. And everything that I do, as far as the money I make, and the time I spend and everything that I do for them and because of them is because I want them to have the kind of life that I never thought I would ever get to have. I'm actually 11 years older than they ever told me I would be. I should be dead. Wow. Yeah, that's so you that's bad news to, to give the a fullest. person. <laughs>
1: Oh, absolutely, but I can see how that like pushes you. I can see how you're uh-huh. like, oh that yeah,
2: drives me. well,
1: prove oh, you wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. They told me I would yep. probably never live past the age of thirty-five, and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> watch me. <laughs> watch me. <laughs> yep, that's kind of my theory on life. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I like your. Uh, I I really liked your quote. Um, if you uh, if you don't mind me uh, reciting it. Um, before you get all weepy and feel sorry for me, please don't. I live life to the fullest. I see with my heart, my mind, and the wonderful, respected, respectful sight of people who know better than to stand in my way. How people have st- So I really like that quote a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, I think that all of us can learn so much from that, you know, because we, um, we get in our own way a lot of times. But you we seem are like you never – we really are. And I want to know like, and I also read that you enjoy zip lining and roller, sk- uh, roller coasters. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yep. Nice. I like anything now, that I'm... makes it so I have to push myself to be able to accomplish it. One of the things I love about zip lining is I'm someplace high, and everyone around me says, Oh, be careful. What if you fall? well what if you step off the curb and a bus bus hits you what if doesn't matter you do mm-hmm. what you feel like you want to do and then you take the consequences of that i am perfectly okay if i fall i have before i fell down and i shattered n- the kneecap in my right leg and that that leg does not work the way it's supposed to anymore but it works mm-hmm. and i do what i need to do and i'm not sorry for things that I try that don't always work out, I learn. And I'm more interested in learning than I am in being safe.
1: So you live life with no regrets, right?
2: I do not live life with regrets. I don't regret anything. All of it is an opportunity to learn what I need to do different or better the next time. What's
1: your next biggest challenge? What's the next big thing you want to do? To either prove it to yourself or prove somebody else wrong.
2: Oh, dear! Um, the next biggest thing I want to do is I want to keep being able to do um, what I'm doing. I've got another series of books. There's two more books in this particular series. I've got a memoir that I'm part way through. I've got a nonfiction series that's called When the Bow Breaks. That's a story. Well, it's a group of stories about um, adoptive families, foster families, and families that raise partial family members. Um, There's quite a number of people in the area that I live where we've all adopted or fostered or raised our brothers and sisters' children. And it's an interesting story to find out not only how you love differently when you're raising someone else's child, but on how you can change a child's life when you can love them and you don't have any blood bond to them
1: That's very compelling stuff never, like, That's my that next nuance big
2: before. that's my next big project that I'd like to be able to do and it's it, it's not going to be a story that is necessarily about me. um I have an eighteen year old son that my husband and I actually adopted from Western Africa when he was four years old. And um, he came with a lot of challenges. Anytime you Mm -hmm. adopt a kid out of a third world country and from a country that is torn by war, you learn to love the way the child needs, not the way that feels the most comfortable to you. And that was a, a big challenge for me. And I've seen a lot of people as they start to try to raise children who have issues and beliefs that aren't based on them, that are based on their past or an abandonment or something that's happened to them and have to adjust to loving that child the way that works for the child, not the way that works for the parent.
1: I bet it's a constant evolution for both parties. Would that be an accurate it is. assessment?
2: Yes, that is completely true. You, never, like you never love one, children, one child the same way as you do another. And that child is always growing and always changing and always learning. And so you are too. You have to change and grow and learn along with the child. And you become a new person every time that child does.
1: So it's as equally as rewarding as it is challenging.
2: Absolutely. Um, there is a book by Dean Koontz. It's a memoir that he wrote about, I'm trying to think what the name of it is. It's like a Little Big Life Little something else that's about a dog, actually, where he talks about how this dog has um, changed his perspective on the world and the way he loved and the way he gave of himself once he learned to love this dog. And it's very much like taking on an adopted child. You learn to love in ways that you never knew you could. And you um, let them love in ways that they don't know how to. And it's an evolutionary process for all of you.
1: Yeah. So, and I know, I've, I also read that uh, you're a part of the National Federation of the Blind. Can you speak a little yes, bit about I'm, that and what it's meant to you to be a part of that?
2: Um, the National Federation of the Blind is a group of blind people who work towards helping other blind people. You know how we were talking before about oftentimes we're our worst enemy? Mm -hmm. Um, The blind are oftentimes their worst enemy. They often believe that there are things that they can't do, that there are things they shouldn't do, that they don't need to do. And the National Federation for the Blind is a group of people that says, you can do this. You can live the life that you want to live. We can help you get the tools and we can help you get the skills and we can help you get the training to be an independent person, and they do it for one another. I was trained to be able to um, – it's called mobility training. I was trained to be able to walk around and ride the bus and, and ride trains and get on airplanes by someone who is also blind, someone who's gone through the training himself and helped other people be able to develop those same skills. And I went from being a person who, once again – When I went blind, um, the boss that I was working for, he went to a thrift store and he bought me a cane that someone had donated to the thrift store. Canes are actually measured according to your height and how far you want to reach out in front of you. So this cane probably reached my belly button. Your cane is supposed to reach at least your nose or your forehead. So I had this little teeny tiny cane. And I was beating my way around the little town that I live in, trying to figure out things mm-hmm. were with this little stick that really wasn't made for me. And then they, they taught me all the equipment that I needed. They got me a computer that would talk to me because I couldn't see the screen. They, they taught mm-hmm. me how to use um, audio books from a place called the um, – uh, What's it called? It just it just left my mind. <laughs> um, the Library of Congress has a, a specific okay. section that's for blind people, mm-hmm. and you it, it's called Bard. That's what it is. Braille uh, accessible reading devices, and when you go through Bard, you can get audiobooks and download them onto this little handheld computer, and then you can read these audiobooks. Um, I don't read braille. Because I was learning to read Braille, and one of the side effects of the medication that I'm on for um, my transplants has caused numbness that covers the palm of my left hand, and so I can't read Braille because I don't have enough sensitivity in that that hand. So they got me the equipment that I needed to be able to be able to do the things I need to do to keep writing. I used to hire my kids two dollars an hour to read through what I'd written, and then show me the places that need to be corrected and put me in the right places so I could correct them. The very first book I read, wrote took me nine months because I had to hire mm-hmm. my kids for $2 an hour to read through all the places that I made mistakes.
1: Now, what is the uh, equipment that you use? You mentioned that um, you I use a, a certain couple, kind of equipment.
2: Yeah, I do. I have a couple of different kinds. Um, The computer program I use is called JAWS, Job Assisted Writing Skills, and it's from um, a company that's called Freedom Scientific. And they make all kinds of different products for people who are blind, and they're based out of Florida. And then um, the computer that I use to be able to download things from the Library for the Blind is called Humanware, and Humanware is back east as well. And they make Equipment for people who are sighted or partially sighted or low vision or completely blind, just depending on what your needs are. There are some things that magnify, there are some things that change the color, there are some things that put certain light where you need it if your um, vision is diminishing but not gone. There's um, an a store for independence that the National Federation of the, uh, the Blind actually has at their headquarters. Where you can order yourself a new cane every time your cane breaks or something happens to it and you need another cane. You can get a free cane every six months from the National Federation of the really? Blind. Yep, if you're blind.
1: Now, do they, they have a of different, um,
2: different places?
1: Go ahead.
2: Um, there's a couple of different places. You can usually get um, services for the blind from your state. They usually have um, the services for disability or um, services for the blind and disabled. You can also get them from the national um, archives that they have. They've got the Library for Congress does a lot for blind people. There's a a website that's called Bookshare where they'll put audio books on Bookshare. And if you're blind, you can register with Bookshare and get, get all the books off the, the, the website at Bookshare for free because um, they're given to blind people as a way to, to keep mm-hmm. them um, literate, even though some of us can't read. There's um, – I'm trying to think of all the places. There are lots of places that you can go. If you just look up services for the blind, they've got stuff in your state. In my state – They have the Disability Service for the Blind and Visually Impaired, and they've got their own offices. Um, They have state rehabilitation services for people who are blind and not employed and are trying to get employed or do a better job of being employed. They've got lots and lots of help. In fact, right now is probably the time when our technology is the best, and places like the National Federation for the Blind help people to be able to see that they can do everything that they want to do.
1: That's awesome. So, it, From everything it is, you're saying, it sounds so comprehensive. Do they have chapters nationwide, or is there just one location?
2: They have got chapters all over the place. I belong to a chapter in the area that I live, and there are probably six other chapters just in the state of Utah. There are chapters wow. in every state all the way across the nation, We are only the national federation. There is an international group of blind people. And then they also have the Utah Council for the Blind. And then they also have um, other organizations who earn money and take donations and support the blind in lots and lots of different ways. The NFB is just one where the blind people work with the blind people to um, our goal is to live the lives we want, the lives of independence that we want. And that's one of the reasons that um, I belong to the, that particular group. There's a lot of people who don't mm-hmm. think they can do anything until they see people who are blind doing it. And they're like, well, if you can, then why can't I? Mm-hmm. And I like being able to yep. inspire people that way.
1: You definitely are inspirational and I read that you speak at book fairs also.
2: Every chance I get, I'll go talk to anybody who will talk to me. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not shy, and I can't see how many people are in the room. So you got five people who came to see me talk, and there's 500 people. I don't know the difference. I really can't. I'm, I, I'm in, a, mm-hmm. I'm in a, what I call a phone booth. Uh, my world exists about two feet from my face, and so it does not bother go. me. If I have a lot of people staring at me or if I got nobody and I'm talking to myself, which I do on occasion.
1: <laughs> I think all writers do that.
2: <laughs> I think we're it's good for us to be able to get our settings and dialogue. our storylines.
1: And we're rehearsing dialogue.
2: That's right. We have conversations and we can tell whether or not they work.
1: Exactly. And that's our excuse and we're sticking with it, right?
2: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And if you don't like it, don't look.
1: Exactly. Or oh, don't read my stuff. Please read my stuff. Just kidding. There you go.
2: <laughs> See, I like that. Um, it's one of the things I love about being blind. If you don't like it, number one, either criticize the blind lady, because I'll, I'll, I'll come right back at you, or keep your mouth shut.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. And
2: I can hear whispers. I can hear people trying not to say things. There are things that I can read in between the lines. If you're silent in the wrong places, if you're sighing, if you're making noises, I tell my husband all the time, I hear you roll your eyes over there.
1: <laughs> that makes you a There's proficient writer as well. There's you get away with with a
2: blind person.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> now, since you're a very powerful person, um, let's segue into what you said on your blog about the power of words. Tell me about your first memory when you realized words had such power.
2: The first time I realized that words were powerful, they came from songs. And I don't know if I actually recognized that it was the power of the words or the power of the music that moved me to first tension to not only the story that I could feel happening with the music, but the story I could hear being told to me. I was told stories lots and lots of different times when I was a a kid. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. My grandparents lived next door to us, and they were both teachers. And we told stories about everything. And that's the first time that I realized how powerful words can be. I um, I had an experience after my dad died where I was I was lost. I didn't know who I was without him. I didn't really know who I'd ever been because so much of it had been based on him. And I moved to New York City and I worked in New York City and I got a little wild while I was in New York City trying to find something that gave me a place to go and something to believe in. And I couldn't find it. And I started looking in stories. And I found the most wonderful stories. And I'd read my whole life, but I'd always read with my dad. My dad was the biggest reader in my family. And so after he was gone, I I went back to reading in order to be able to find. And I could heal a lot of the pain and a lot of the trauma that I was going through by being able to find a story that would make me cry for reasons I didn't even know why. And Mm -hmm. I understood the power of words when my emotions could be released through stories, and I made a study of words from that point on. I like quotes. I like songs. I like anything that makes me feel when I write it, when I read it, and when other people have that same experience.
1: Piggybacking on that, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how You've paid that forward
2: um, in your own way. I wanted to be able to inspire people to be able to heal their own pain, to be able to connect with a story enough that they felt like their experiences and their emotions were being directly spoken to by either the author or by the person in the book. And so I started looking at some of these books that inspired me i was having um i had a number of health issues i was on kidney dialysis for a little over two years and when you're on kidney dialysis they hook you up to a machine and it cleans all of the blood out of you a tablespoon at a time and then puts it back into you after it's been cleaned it takes anywhere from three to four hours three times a week for them to be able to clean all the all your blood out And that gave me lots and lots of time to be able to read and to be able to have stories that would touch me. And um, during some of the um, medical visits that I was doing, I'd have to drive up to Salt Lake City. I'm at the south end of the state, and Salt Lake City is at the north end. So we drive up and go to my doctor's appointments, and then we drive back. And it ends up being about an eight-hour round trip. And my husband works. So, we'd drive up first thing in the morning, we'd go to a doctor's appointment, we'd drive back, and then he'd be at work the next day. And during those long processes, we listened to books to help keep us awake and to help um, get us through those long periods of time where there was nothing to look at, especially in my case. And because of that, I started studying the stories. And I ran into a particular book everyone just loved and ranted and raved and you've got to read this book. And they gave me a copy of it for these trips and I hated it. (laughs) I absolutely hated it. There was so much wrong with this story. The characters were bad. The plots didn't work. Oh, I absolutely hated it. And My husband said, it's just a story. What is the big deal? And I'm like, I can do better than this. And all of a sudden, I was like, I can. I can do better than this. We're affecting people with a belief that's not real, that we all know and love each other and it all works out and everything just moves on and none of us disagree and none of us don't get along. and Weddings are beautiful, and babies are happy, and that's not true. We need to have real experiences that build real love, not attraction, not what I call girl porn, real love that's about dedication and devotion and sacrifice.
1: I think this is the first time I've ever heard someone actually say that they were inspired by bad writing, but it's still true. True. <laughs> because I don't we think all people hear the admit stories that about. they're
2: inspired by bad writing.
1: Oh, I know, but it's like it is such a great motivator and it is a oh, great yeah. like muse for us and it puts the muse in amused.
2: <laughs> yes, it does. I've noticed for me personally, if I'm reading a really really good book, I'll get sucked into the story and I won't even notice why this story is mm-hmm. touching me, but if I'm reading a bad story, I'll be like, "Oh, this is horrible. I've got to go do better than this. I've got to go write something that is better than this. This is bad. Why does anybody buy mm-hmm. this? And then it just makes me want to go write something that I'm hoping somebody <laughs> will get sucked into and not remember that they didn't like the book.
1: You know, Tracy, it all it's all going back to proving people wrong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you think that's my core issue right there?
1: <laughs> I'm thinking so <laughs> I mean it's true. I'm just a podcast host, but that's my diagnosis anyway:
2: <laughs> It's true. Um, it's been the biggest thing in my life that has either driven me to do better or made me question whether or not I'm doing what's right, and I have to be careful so, that I'm doing what is a good thing and not the quote unquote right thing. I can drive. I shouldn't, but I can. And I have to ask myself mm-hmm. that question about everything I do. Just because you can, does that mean you should? And it's more about whether or not I should than whether or not I can.
1: That's very That's very true. And that leads me to my next question. Now, you have, you believe very strongly in the power of words. You feel very strongly about having your reader connect with your writing. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, when you're writing a scene in one of your stories, do you, on your first draft of it, the first draft of that scene, do you go through it really fast, or do you take your time with it on that first draft?
2: Um, my first drafts have evolved over the years, And when I very first started to write, it became about the words. It became about Mm -hmm. using words magically. And a lot of times I would get lost, and the story would get lost, because I wanted so badly to paint these pictures that were about the words. And so I would write according to what I saw in my head. And this is one of the things that you need to understand about a blind person. What we see in our heads is not very accurate. And a lot of times when I would write stories, I would take you through a scene the way I pictured it in my head. And there were gaps that people would go, "Um, how did she get from the beach to the boardwalk four towns away? Well, she rode the bus. Okay, put that in there. (laughs) Because there were Mm -hmm. gaps. That I would leave out, just because um, may- maybe you've noticed this too. You know how you got somewhere, and you don't think you need to tell mm-hmm. anyone else how it happened. And I had to be very yeah, careful about granted. left foot, right. Yeah, and I had to be very careful about left foot, right foot, writing, mm-hmm. and leaving those gaps both at the same time. A blind person. When you tell me, if, if you were to come into my house and say, I need you to come meet me at the mailbox, it's around the corner and to the right. Mm-hmm. I am going to go out my front door. I'm going to find the street with my camera. I'm going to turn right, and I'm going to walk until I feel the sidewalk end where it drops into the street, and then I'll stop right there. The mailbox is around here somewhere because he said mm-hmm. – down down the street, to the right, and around the corner. And I'll stay right there on the corner while I try to find that. Well, maybe you meant 15 Hmm. feet down the street and to the right. Maybe you meant I was supposed to go the opposite direction to go across the street and to the right once I got there. We take for granted how much information actually goes into giving directions, and blind people do not. I wrote a scene one time where there was a group of people who met in a foyer and then they made it down the stairs and to the entrance of the hotel that they were staying in. So I wrote the scene that they came out, they spent some time in the foyer and then they met up at the front doors of the hotel. And they said, well, aren't they on the second floor? How did they get in front of the hotel? What happened in between? And I was like, Oh, See, in my head, I'd walked down the hallway. I'd found the foot of the stairs. I'd gone down the stairs. I'd gone to the front doors. Mm-hmm. But I didn't tell you any of that because that's just instinctual to me to keep all track of all of that inside my head and not explain to you that that's what I'm doing.
1: It's a very, like, fine line to, like, cross between, like, trusting the audience to know mm-hmm. and... Like, it's like, it's like the same with filmmaking. What stays in the frame and what's not in the frame? Like, what's right. really telling the story?
2: Yeah. So. It's true. Okay, well, we'll and it's, it's been one of the challenges that um, I have to figure out. When am I telling you too much? And when am I not telling mm-hmm. you enough? Because all of it makes sense in my head. But I can't tell if it makes sense in your head. I have a lot of people who beta read for me you can go, okay, I don't know how Mm -hmm. you got from here to here because I can't tell myself. In my head, I'm doing it.
1: Completely understandable, yeah. So while we have a few minutes left, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your latest book, Soul of Stone. Okay. Um, It interweaves a mystery of receiving text messages from a past-on relative, the feeling of isolation, and real-world issues like trafficking. Um, What inspired this story?
2: Um, There is a large amount of human trafficking that goes on in the United States right now. In fact, it is an $800 billion a year enterprise that is worldwide. I read um, articles. I've got friends who are part of the Underground Trafficking Network that stop human trafficking. and I read a number of Uh, the articles and the stories that they tell me. And there was a woman who was a security expert in a hotel, a Marriott hotel in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And she had uh, two men with a nine-year-old boy outside of a vending machine in this hotel lobby. And she walked past them. And heard one of them say to the other one, this one's pretty good. I might actually consider keeping him myself. And that set off a red flag in her mind. Mm -hmm. And she contacted the police and she contacted the security experts that worked for the Marriott Hotel. And they returned this nine-year-old boy to his family. And they broke open this whole group of human traffickers that would come to New Orleans during Mardi Gras and can collect these children, um, young ladies, young women especially, and sell them to human trafficking. And that's where the inspiration really came from. Um, we haven't reached mm-hmm. a point in the series yet where you get to see the different aspects, black magic that go into things of, like human trafficking. But there will be different mm-hmm. stories in the series that cover different aspects of what is modern crime being disguised as something else. One of the other things that inspired me to tell that story is that so many times we are interested in the appearance of people and we don't notice that they're people. They're more like statues. And That's where the concept of the statues comes from in um, Soul of Stone is that We don't Mm -hmm. see people as human beings. We see them as artistic pieces, and then they see themselves as artistic pieces too.
1: It is a very compelling book, and I think that this is definitely a story uh, that needs to be told, and I think that it will definitely entertain and educate a lot of people about what's going on.
2: That's what I hope for.
1: Um, and I wanna thank you very much for being on my show tonight. Um I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. And um
2: Thank you so I much. You I enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to it for a week.
1: <laughs> all right, great. Thank you very much, and I wish you all the very best, okay?
2: Thank you, Scott.
1: You're welcome. Have a great night.
2: You too. Bye bye. Bye
1: bye. If you'd like to be a guest on Renaissance Rambles to talk about how you followed your dream or you, and how you encourage other people to follow their dreams, you can contact me at scottrcasely, that's C-A-S as in Sam, E-L-E-Y, at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and have a great night. Bye-bye.